All right. So before we get into the show, guys, I want to remind everybody about Wisecrack Plus, which is our new Patreon platform where we uh, give you guys more Wisecrack content. So go to wisecrackplus.com, especially uh, relevant to this episode of Show Me the Meaning. We have a full research document of our three-part philosophy of Christopher Nolan research. So a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about in this podcast is explored even deeper. And for those of you who are fans of the podcast and are fans of Austin specifically, Austin was the producer and he pulled all together the research. So it's all a lot of Austin's independent thoughts. So you can get all of the philosophy of Christopher Nolan research at wisecrackplus.com, plus all sorts of other new stuff that we're uploading. Uh, we have our Discord chat. We've got uh, experiments that we're always bouncing off of our patrons. We've even got a patron podcast coming up. So really hope you guys will check it out and on with the show. everyone, welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecrack's movie podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared, and I'm joined with the crew here. We got Ryan. Hey, film fans. And Austin is actually on a plane right now, so he will not be joining us today. But in his stead, we have a new member of the Wisecrack crew, Helen. Hi, everybody. So Helen is actually heading up a super top secret science initiative for uh, for Wisecrack. So we're still working on that. We're going to kind of keep our lips a bit sealed. But uh, Helen is a science journalist, and we're really excited to ha- bring her voice into the fold. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jared. And we have another special guest, James Fodor from the Science of Everything podcast. How are you doing, James? Hi, I'm good. Thanks. So James, his science podcast is awesome. I highly recommend you guys check it out. We'll talk about it more later in this episode. But James is also, a, he runs a blog called The Godless Atheist. And, the Godless Theist. Um, oh, the Godless Theist, I'm sorry, <laughs> yes. excuse me. It's still, that was, it's that still was redundant. Redundant. oxymoronic, so, yeah. <laughs> right, it's still be, and, and I wanted to, and James's mission statement, I, I read, read a bit of his blog, really resonates with something we do in Wisecrack. I just wanted to, Uh, read something. He said, I believe that in differing ways and in different degrees, both atheistic naturalism and Christian theism are rationally justifiable and intellectually imposing worldviews, each deserving of serious engagement and consideration. And I just wanted to say to James that, um, you know, giving credence to both religious and non-religious thought is also a big mission that we have here at Wisecrack. So really glad to have you uh, be a voice of the podcast. Really excited to have you on. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Cool. So today we're talking about the 2010 film written and directed by Christopher Nolan, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Inception. So we're going to go around, get first impressions, what we thought about this film the first time we saw it, and how it is revisiting it. Let's start with Ryan. Uh, well, first time I saw it, uh, mind blown. Um, <laughs> I believe we saw it together. Yeah, I think we did too. Yeah. At the Cinerama Dome? Maybe? I don't think... I think it was just a regular theater at the Arclight. Okay. Well, Well. Uh, uh, anyway, the um, it was awesome. I definitely... The first time I saw it... I've seen it a lot. I can't count how many times I've seen it now, which... It, this movie is crazy on repeat viewings like all of his movies are, but the first time I was... I remember us being a little confused or at least after the movie going, wait, what? Or kind of like piecing it together. But now, after having revisited it fucking eight years later and a million viewings later... It makes a lot more sense, and it's really fun to watch, you know, all the scenes, how it's constructed. This is like, I feel like the most exposition in any movie of all time. It's so long. Except lo- it's maybe so Casino. Long. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the whole movie is exposition. Yeah. But, uh, uh, but yeah, it's so long. That's my only criticism. It's just too long. It's but, so long. It, uh, I started this movie at like 6 p.m., and somehow... I was like, it's 11 p.m. and I just finished. Now, granted, I stopped, had dinner, stopped, took notes, but I was like, this movie just keeps going. 
Yeah. The whole time thing is a really interesting device. I haven't seen any other movie or, you know, just use the way that he does it. And I hope we'll break that down later. But yeah, this is a really cool movie. And I'd say my first time I saw it, I'd give it like A plus fucking love it. This time it has, you know, I've seen it too many times, which any movie will do. So B plus (laughs) A A minus B plus. Okay. Okay. Uh, Helen, what about you? You know, the first time I saw it was actually back when it came out in theater, back in, in 2010. And um, I was confused, too. And that's the yeah. that's because it's just, it's a lot at, at once, especially if you don't really, um, you know, kind of being, looking at this this whole, you know, concept of entering a dream for the first time. And it's like, what's he doing? That in and of itself is enough to kind of, you know, hold on with to your, you know, with a little bit. Um, but I, I love it. Um, I think that they do a good job kind of... Um, you know, taking some some difficult concepts that, especially at least on second viewing, I felt like they did a good job taking some uh, difficult concepts and kind of, um, you know, making them viewer friendly. And I came out with it with some, um, you know, kind of different ideas of my own. Like, you know, what if things were this way? And it, it should have introduced some um, hypotheticals that have, I know, have been kind of the jumping off point for even some science. So it's pretty interesting. Interesting. Well, I, I'm excited to hear more about that. James, what about you? I uh, think I first saw this movie shortly after it came out on DVD, and uh, I and, and just rewatched it recently, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I was actually one, one of my main reactions is I'm quite surprised how popular it was, given how uh, potentially sort of confusing and convoluted it is. Um, you know, it takes a few times to get your head around what's going on, and also um, how sort of actually philosophically deep the movie is. Um, potentially, that's not the case for. Uh, for other comparable sort of action Hollywood movies. So um, I think it's it's quite interesting in that respect. Awesome. Uh, so when I first watched this movie, I was a little bit disappointed. Uh, I was really disappointed by the just assault of information, all like to, to Ryan's point, all of the exposition. I found myself being a little bit like, uh-oh. Actually, Ryan, remember the first time we saw it, there was like a power outage and we, oh, we, yeah. we missed like, 10 minutes or something like that. When the the power went out, we were still like 45 minutes in the movie and the exposition hadn't ended. And I remember looking at one of our friends, looking at him saying, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, you know, this is not the movie off the crest of the acclaim of the Dark Knight that I was hoping for, at least initially. And also, if I remember, we we went in, they were very secretive about the plot of this movie. Like, we went in not really knowing anything. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, th- I mean, like, the, the rumors were that not even the actors knew what the movie was about. Right, you know? yeah. Um, but, so, Ryan, and in some of our other podcasts, we have this inside joke about how much I love talking about meta stuff, and I have the biggest meta boner in the world for this movie. <laughs> so, I am going to be talking quite a bit about that, so um, I hope you guys bear with me. And after... Reading it through the meta lens, this movie is amazing. I think it's so endlessly interesting. But just as a movie about corporate espionage, I don't really think it's that cool. I think that it's super ambitious. I think some of the visuals are really cool. I think the concept is really cool. But I kind of cast a lot of doubt as to how effective, how dramatically effective these things actually are. Um, really? Yeah. Because I don't know. Like, there are parts of the movie where I understand what's going on, but I don't find myself on the edge of my seat. I don't find myself like super engaged. But having said that, I think the more I, the more times I watch this movie, the more thought I put into it, the more interesting it is. I think this is a fascinating film. And I, and Austin and I, it's a shame that he's not here. We always do meta interpretations of Chris Nolan's work. And I think that he does have a tradition of making movies that are about movies or dreamlike experiences or, uh, you know, confronting reality and stuff like that and how that works with a 
you know, uh, watching a movie and engaging with a movie and being suspended in a state of disbelief. So we'll get to that. But before we get to the recap, I want to go around and ask just real quick, is he dreaming at the end or not? Uh, the answer to that question is 100,000% definitively no. He's not dreaming. No, so it's, reality. it's reality. Helen, what do you think? Oh, my, does it, I heard it, that top thing at the end, that audio thing, you know, yeah, okay. the top ended. Yeah, the, I remember the first time I watched it, that's that's what I thought too. The top fell over. But, you know, after the second time, I mean, my bigger question is like, does it matter? Okay. You know, so that's really what so I'm your left quest, with. So your question is, your answer is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's, that's not James. an option. <laughs> I, I don't agree with the it doesn't matter. I think one of the main themes of the movie is that it really does matter to him whether Thank you. it's real or not. And I, I don't think he is dreaming at the end. I think he um, makes it clear in the, in the earlier scene that he um, can tell the difference between his... Um, sort of dream family and his his real family and that that's really important to him. So yeah, I, I think it's real. Okay, cool. So I'm going to go into the recap. Wish me luck. Wait, wait, what was your fucking answer? Oh, my answer. <laughs> um, you know, interestingly, up till last night when I rewatched the film, my answer would have been, it doesn't matter. Now, it's not an answer. But that is going. an answer. That absolutely is an answer. And we'll get into that. Now I'm starting to cast doubt on that, and I really just don't know what to think. So it went from it doesn't matter to you don't know? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, exactly. Keep going. All right, guys, before we move on, just want to make an announcement that next week we're going to be covering the 2007 film Zodiac, directed by David Fincher, starring Jake Gyllenhaal. So be sure to watch the movie before we cover it next week so you can think along with us. It's three hours long, so I apologize, but it's a good three hours. Anyway, back to Inception. So, recap. Wish me luck. Cobb is a dream thief, or one who enters people's dreams in order to extract sensitive information for high-profile clients. After proving his skills to the energy tycoon Saito, Cobb is hired for his most ambitious job yet, Inception, or the planting of an idea in, inside someone's head. In exchange for getting Robert Fisher, the heir of one of Saito's competitors, to break up his father's company, Saito will ensure Cobb's criminal charges are dropped, allowing Cobb to re-enter the U.S. and be a father to his kids. So Cobb gathers a team to infiltrate Fisher's mind. During training, the architect Ariadne learns that Cobb is haunted by a subconscious projection of his deceased wife, Maul, who vandalizes his efforts in the dreams that he inhabits. When the team enters the first dream level, they discover that Fisher's mind has been trained to resist their methods of espionage, which in this movie means dudes in suits are shooting at them while they grab Fisher. Not only that, but due to the nature of the sedative, if they die in the dream, they risk being stuck in limbo or unstructured dream space. The team decides that the best move is to continue on with the mission and plunge deeper into the next dream world. Ariadne discovers that after waking up from decades in limbo, Maul insisted that her and Cobb were still dreaming and killed herself in an effort to get back to reality. In the second dream world, Cobb convinces Fisher that he is an agent of his subconscious defense training and that it is his subconscious that is out to extract information from his mind. They eventually manipulate Fisher into letting them enter his subconscious into the third dream level, where Maul shows up and foils their plans by shooting Fisher. This forces Ariadne and Cobb to follow Fisher into limbo, where Maul confronts them. Cobb confesses that he incepted her to question her reality in an effort to convince her to return to reality, but even after exiting the dream world, she continued to question reality and killed herself. 
Ariadne finds Fisher in limbo and ushers him back to the third dream level where he experiences the bonding experience with his father that will incept him with the idea to break up the company. The rest of the team escape the dream world through a synchronized kick, except Cobb, who has to find Saito in limbo. Cobb washes up on the shore of limbo and finds Saito, who has been living in limbo for decades. He reminds them of their arrangement and wakes up in the real world. Saito honors his commitment, makes a phone call, and Cobb makes it home to his kids. Or does he? The final shot of Cobb's totem makes it unclear. End of movie. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So before I get into the meta reading, because I feel like, you know, that's probably just what I like too much. Let's just talk about about the nature of if it's a dream. Let's just get to that. Uh, so would you guys like me to start with why I thought it didn't matter? Yes. Okay. So the reason why I thought that the answer was that it didn't matter is because throughout the film, there is significant emphasis on the importance of taking a leap of faith. So there's a couple times Maul says it consistently. And then Saito says, like, you know, you don't know if I'm going to be able to clear you of the charges, but you're going to have to take a leap of faith and just trust me. And then Maul is telling him, I'm asking you to take a leap of faith to uh, be with me instead of concerning yourself with what is real. Um, And so my interpretation was, if you notice at the end when he spins the top and then he goes to hang out with his kids, usually when he's spinning the top, he's like staring at it intently with like a gun in his hand, but he doesn't do that. He just walks off to his kids and starts playing with them and the totem is just in the background as if it doesn't matter. And so my interpretation initially was that he decides to take that leap of faith like Saito told him, like Maul told him, and that it's the leap of faith that he is in reality that matters, not whether it actually is reality or not. Now, the reason why I now question that is because after watching it this time, I think that the film's disposition toward taking a leap of faith has both its pros and cons. So on the one hand, he takes a leap of faith with Saito that is rewarded. He trusts Saito even though there's no reason to, and Saito, uh, you know, gives him his freedom. But the one when Maul asks him, Maul just is always telling him, just pick the more palatable reality and stay with me. But that's something that he overcomes. Now, granted, that's because... He says, look, I don't want to just stay with you because you're just a shade of the real person I remember. You're not my real wife. So I don't, Maul says it doesn't matter what you know, but what you believe. But he ends up rejecting what Maul, or at least the projection of Maul is telling him. So that leads me to think, you know, I don't really know how we're supposed to think of the leap of faith. It seems like he is rewarded by taking a leap of faith, but at the same time, the film criticizes Maul, who tells him to take a leap of faith. Well, you say it doesn't matter. He walked away, so therefore... It's like he doesn't think it matters, but why Why spend the top to begin with? I mean, he'd come back after playing with his kids, and I if, guess it's, he, if he it's didn't, still he, he spinning, didn't see the kids. I mean, that's fair. I mean, but I do think that, I mean, in the past, you know, he doesn't even want to look at his kids until he knows it's reality. Like, he's afraid to even see their faces because he wants to remember the pure faces. So that was my prevailing theory. But now I, but once again, because I think that the disposition toward taking a leap of faith is more ambiguous, I don't really 
I don't really have strong faith in that interpretation. So why do you guys think it's it's real or not real? Well, J- J- I'm interested to hear James's response. Yeah, yeah. Too. Well, I think that the the leap of faith um, motif is interesting. Um, a couple of points on that. One is that I wouldn't necessarily take what Marl says to be indicative of what we should trust or think that is the, the correct answer because Marl is presented as being untrustworthy and kind of a psychopath. Um, or, the projection, or at least the projection, projection of Marl. Yeah, projection Marl, yeah. I should say. Um, the other point is that taking the, the idea of a leap of faith, I think, is that it you have to sort of go out on a limb and you don't know uh, at the outset what the outcome will be. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what, what the outcome is. Like when he trusts um, Saito, for example, that he'll actually make the call, um, he has to take a leap of faith there. But at the end of the day, it still matters, obviously, to him whether Saito does actually follow through or not. So um, I think that the fact that he has to take leaps of faith at various points in the movie, it doesn't, it doesn't follow from that that it, it doesn't matter at the end whether he is in reality or not. Well, that that's I agree with that because I think if we, if Maul or the projection of Maul was seen as more of a benevolent figure, then it would make sense for us to, you know, take more stock in her saying that it doesn't matter what you know, but what you believe. But once again, that's a disposition that has to be overcome. So I agree with you that the leap of faith thing doesn't entirely work, but I still, but, but then if that doesn't work, I'm just back to, I'm just back to, well, you know what? The one thing that when I, when I first saw the movie, I thought that like, oh, he's obviously in reality because he remember, he sees the kids' faces before it seemed like he couldn't remember. So just by the fact that he sees faces, it has to be reality because, you know, it's not in his subconscious to know what they look like anymore because it seems like they had forgotten. But I don't know. There's some internet thing that disproved. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but what? So what? What makes you think firmly that it is in fact reality, James? Um, yeah. So there's the points I said before. Um, previously in the movie, we see his um, we see his kids a number of times, and it's pretty much always the same. Um, like the same scene where they're playing and they're facing away from him, um, and that I sort of interpret that as representing his um well it's obviously his projection of what the last memory he has of his kids but it's also um when he sees that that's him realizing um that that's his sort of subconscious projection and that um that's I interpret that that's why he's always looking away from that because he doesn't want to interact with uh his subconscious projection of his kids he wants to get back to his real kids so at the end um when he when he sort of sees his kids um he knows that those are his real kids. It's different to the projection uh, that that we've seen elsewhere in the movie, and also from previously. What when he said when he was in limbo and was talking to Projection Mal, he says that uh, you know that you're not. I can tell you're not my real wife. There's no way that my subconscious can capture all of your imperfections and perfections and so on. And and likewise, I think that's applying to his kids as well. And that's why I think that he's he spins the top and then he sort of looks over and he sees his kids. It's not that that it's not that it doesn't matter whether it's um real. It's that it doesn't matter to him to look at the top because he can tell that it's real without needing the totem. I see. That's how I interpret. Interesting. That. That's interesting. And I think that you know you're right to. S- and I really appreciate actually that interpretation of it because, um, you know, when I said it doesn't matter, I think what I meant more is that it doesn't matter necessarily to him because it's been at this point so long and such a difficult, this is a very challenging thing that he's, you know, having to do. This is the most difficult thing that he's had to do over the course of his career. And um, I thought perhaps that, you know, at that point he was ready to kind of abandon um that he just needed so badly to see them. And all this time it had kind of been him, you know, not looking at their faces. It had been more of a 
representative, I think, of, you know, catharsis, I think, on his part is, you know, kind of suppressing the idea that um, his that he wanted to be back with them so badly, I think. But maybe I'm, I'm interpreting it through kind of the, of a, you know, kind of a bit more of a character. Um, but I'm not sure if that um, – anyway, I think I'd – I think I like your interpretation better in the end, actually. It makes um, so it's a bit nicer, I think. So I, I want to move on, uh, but, I mean, just a couple of things. So on the one hand, the kids don't seem to have aged. But then again, we don't have really any indication of how long it's been since Maul died and he had to leave the country. So, I mean, it could have been just a couple months. It could have been years. We don't really know. And aren't the kids wearing, like, the same clothes? Yeah, that's... Yeah. The- that's one of the reasons that it could be a dream, I right. think, on the internet. Yeah. Yeah, but I I mean, I, I'm not really a fan of focusing on details like that, like visual details, uh, when not? it when it comes to uh, I, I'm more interested in the technique rather than just like like there's one prevailing theory on the internet that's like, oh, in these scenes he's wearing uh, a wedding ring and then in other scenes he's not, and the ones where he's wearing a wedding ring are real. I don't really buy that. Like, I think that that's... It's like the crack in the driveway in Ricky I, I think that's just really uninteresting because filmmaker, you know, that's just like literally a detail that the set design puts in. And then, but I think Nolan is such so much more interested in the form of film about how uh, camera movements and montage and uh, the juxtaposition of images can create a story, to, a story rather than, you know, just hiding details. No, I agree. Um, all right, so... Without further ado, I want to move on to the meta reading. Oh, let's go. Um, because I think that this is the reason why rewatching this film is so rewarding for me. And uh, I feel like this is like, I feel like I should put a big bullshit warning here because I can go deep into this. Like <laughs> the more, like this is probably the third time I've watched the movie uh, kind of with the meta reading in my head. And I just go deeper and deeper every time. So if you guys want to call bullshit on me, feel free. Um, and how much of your meta reading do you feel like Chris Nolan actually uh, intentionally did. There, there's going to be a line that I cross, definitely. <laughs> okay. Like at, at some point, I think that at least the seed of it is deliberate, but at some point, I think I'm probably just projecting. Okay. Uh, so let's hear it. All right. So basically, the meta reading is that the way that dreams function is the way that cinema functions, and that there's kind of this reflexive commentary on the similarity of dreams and cinema. So we, uh, the logic of cinema works like the logic of dreams. So, for example, um, I think the clearest example of this is during the training scene with Ariadne. So he says, this is when they're at, like, the French cafe, and they're just sitting there, and he says, you never remember the beginning of the dream. You always just wake up in the middle. So when Cobb is explaining the ways that dreams can, like, coax us into thinking that something is real, he's always com- he's also commenting on the way that cinema functions in engrossing an audience. So similar to how a dream never starts at the beginning, a scene in a movie often starts from the middle as well. So an audience accepts that a film may jump forward in time and cut to a new location, but we're programmed to accept these narrative ellipses and, like, economic editing. So when Cobb reprimands Ariadne for simply accepting that what she's experiencing is real without remembering how she got there. He's also kind of reprimanding the audience for allowing the logic of cinema to fool them. You know, because we don't see them walk into the cafe and order stuff. We don't see them take the bus to Paris. We're just there. And um, I think another good example of this is like when Cobb is running from the assassins after meeting Eames in Mombasa. First of all, it starts with an establishing shot of just, you know, we don't know how he got there. We just start in the middle of it. He's already at the table with Eames, drinking or whatever they're doing. Um, So, but not only that, but then when Cobb is running away, 
he runs into an alley that narrows to a point, which is very reminiscent of claustrophobia, which is a common anxiety found in dreams and nightmares. And then Saito just like conveniently shows up. What is he doing there? It kind of seems very unlikely, but I think these kind of convenient things happen in movies all the time. So he's kind of always forcing us to ask, is this just a cinematic technique that is forcing us to accept illogical things, or is this indication that it's a dream? So once you are looking at the movie through this meta framework, you're constantly asking yourself, now wait, like, is this just cinematic technique, or is this indication that it's a dream? So another example. That's why, in my opinion, every movie should start, the first frame should be the Big Bang, so that we know, <laughs> you know, exactly what's, what came before that. Right. You know? Yeah. So, like, for example, at the beginning of the movie, we see... Saito's like complex or something like that. We later find out it's a dream, but it's like it's just like this modern traditional mix like that Saito's some sort of like super rich industrialist Bond villain. Like what what rich Japanese man lives in a complex like this? Like that's something we would see in a mustache twirling Bond villain movie. And but we accept this because we're accustomed to this kind of panache and hyperbole in action films, but then it's conceptualized as, no, the reason it looks like this is because we're inside Saito's dreams. Um, and I think that this whole Bond film thing is pretty apt throughout the rest of the movie. So Her Majesty's Secret Right, so the service. snow bunker chase scene is essentially an homage to On His Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, Secret Service. So it feels more like a Bond film than a film about dreams. Uh, but I think that, first of all, uh, Nolan is, what is he, pseudo-British? Really British? What is it again? Like... Isn't he British? British? He, yeah, because he, like, was born in Chicago, and then, like, I uh, think Christopher he, Nolan was? Yeah, he was born in Chicago. Oh. His brother doesn't have an accent. He was, like, born in Chicago, and then, like, went to elementary school in Chicago, and then, like, had most of his schooling in Britain. So that's why he's I got no the idea. accent. But I think his brother Jonathan stayed in the U.S., which is why Jonathan doesn't have an accent. Um, Weird. Anyway, but, like, comparing... Inception to a Bond, like a Bond film is kind of an ode to cinema itself. We know that Nolan is a hardcore cinephile. He's a, a, a film purist. You know, he only wants to shoot on film. He's the guy who's saying like, you know, if you're not going to see my movie Dunkirk in a theater or an IMAX, just don't see it at all. You know, <laughs> right. um, so I think it makes sense that Nolan would draw inspiration from one of the essential action film franchises when constructing the aesthetic of dreams. And let's not forget the whole logic of how these dreams work is like when the subconscious starts... Uh, you know, getting mad at you or whatever, they become basically Bond villains, guys in suits trying to shoot you or like Bond Nameless, henchmen. faceless. Nameless, kind of faceless, yeah. yeah. So that's one level and I can go way deeper on this, but I don't know if I should, I uh, <laughs> I guess before I do that, because it's going to start getting to the projecting thing, I, I, I want to turn to Helen and James and ask, a, if um, if you were ever aware of this reading, and B, uh, from your scientific backgrounds, I know that both of you deal with brain science in one way or another. I'm curious if, actually, I just want to, uh, so I'm curious if this nature of uh, the way that film affects us is similar to the way our dreams affect us. I'm wondering if there's any scientific basis in this, but I want to uh, preface this with a quote from a famous film editor named Walter Murch in his book, In the Blink of an Eye. He says that the reason that films work is because we've been trained by our dreams to be invested in this kind of disjointed storytelling. So I'm just going to read a quote. And granted, he's an editor. There's no scientific basis behind this. He's just talking. He says, we accept the cut because it resembles the way images are juxtaposed in our dreams. In the darkness of the theater, we say to ourselves, in effect, this looks like reality, but it cannot be reality because it is so visually discontinuous. Therefore, it must be a dream. Um, so I'll just as a framing that conversation, I'm curious, um, if you guys have run into 
any discussion about the way film works and its similarity to dreams? Um, yeah, I've heard of that reading before, actually, of this film in particular. Um, kind of in, you know, it was coming off the back of, um, I think there's some evidence, and I'm kind of hard-pressed to point exactly to which study that was, but some evidence that, um, you know, the way that the brain that the brain dreams, what we see in the brain, you know, during dreaming is similar to what we see when you're watching a film. Um, but that was, uh, you know, that's that's kind of the, the limits of that. And you, you sort of see the, but the activity that you see in, you know, places like the prefrontal cortex is, is similar. Um, what about you, James? Well, I've never heard of that, um, uh, I guess, reading of the film or uh, analogy between dreams and cinema. It's an interesting idea. I think one, one tricky thing is that we don't really have access to uh, what we dream about. That is, we only have access to our memories of dreams and people's reports after they've been woken up. And uh, th- those aren't necessarily the same thing, right? Because once we wake up, we have to, uh, it's, it's difficult to remember our dreams, um, especially after time passes. But, but then also we have to sort of uh, verbalize and articulate and put some structure to a series of images and emotions and so on that, that uh, was, was passing through our minds when we were asleep. So uh, in some sense there, I, I think that there may be a disconnect between when we think of yeah, what what I dreamed about or what my dream was and the actual experience of the dreaming, if that makes sense. So when you hear the Walter Murch quote, when he says the reason why I you know can cut two images together and it makes sense is because we've been trained in our dreams. Hearing this from a, a non-scientific individual, does does that just sound like bullshit to you or yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Well, I guess... <sighs> I guess I'm not really sure that I agree that we know what, what's going on when we dream in that sense because what we have access to is what we remember when we wake up. And mm-hmm. when we wake up, we have um, our full, well, relatively full sort of cognitive apparatus and uh, reality checking is is um, is functional when it's generally not when we're dreaming. And so we're trying to fit together the images and emotions and other things that we remember um, what about in, lucid in dreaming, a way that though? makes some sense. Have any of y'all ever lucid dreamed or know how? I have not. Like uh, me? I have. Oh, I oh, have. Do you know, wait, like when you say you know how, do you, you mean you do it? Eat a banana it? before bed, right? Well, no, you, you, <laughs> That's uh, what I've heard. you, you write, it, like right when you wake up in the morning, you write it, like, like James, you write everything that you can fucking remember, you know, and then they say that you dream in patterns, right? So, so right before you go to bed, then you read your last several dreams or, you know, you read your book, your, your, your dream journal, basically. And then at some point you're going to note while you're dreaming, you'll notice a pattern that you wrote down. You're going to go, wait a minute, that, that guy has a, re-, you know, this is exactly what happened. I read my dream journal. Holy shit. I'm in a dream. And then usually you'll wake up right immediately after that. But then, you know, you do it enough and then you can kind of play around in your dream and go hang out and do whatever the fuck you want. Interesting. I'm sure everyone just hangs out. <laughs> That's what I do at night. Yeah, interesting. Anytime anyone ever tells me like, oh yeah, I lucid dreamed last night and I uh, played some video games. I'm like, you liar. <laughs> <laughs> You're fucking lying. You did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what do you guys think? You want me to move on with my meta thing or is it bullshit? I would like to hear your 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 most craziest part of your meta yeah. thing that, right, that well, you don't think it's, Christopher it's gonna, Nolan it's, did. It's going to keep going. I mean, so first of all, when you're watching it through this lens, I mean, so many of the lines are just like, I feel like he's talking about making them. And, and just to preface your, your thing about how he did do some of this, like every member of the team, if you... You can See, re- I don't. Re- you're saying that every member of the team is is representative of some. Well, that's something one of those in the internet theories. You know? yeah. I, don't, I, I don't really ascribe to that one. I think I think the, the obvious one is that Ariadne is the audience. But why don't you ascribe to that one? It seems pretty clear. 
Well, tell me the roles then. I mean, so like Saito. I need to go to IMDb.com. So Saito is the producer because he's literally funding the thing. That makes sense. Oh, okay. Uh, Cobb is the director. Arthur is the producer. Ariadne is the- Why would Arthur be the producer? Okay. So Arthur does like the research and he's like, I guess the one who has his shit together. Ariadne is the production designer. Eames is the actor. Saito is the studio and Fisher is the audience. You don't don't buy that? I mean, I can say Eames is the actor. I mean, he's the one that acts. He's a method actor, you know? I don't know. I think that- in that system. Uh, um, oh. is the, Mall, <laughs> Mall is the apart. overreaching studio. <laughs> He's the, the studio head. Yeah, I don't, I, I just hmm. think that that's taking it too far. I think there are elements there. And, and the one thing is like Ariadne, I mean, the, the, that's, the, 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 the that's parallel, taking it too far. That seems like the clearest of, but of I, your no, meta I reading. I think that in general, the logic of films works like the logic of cinema, but I don't think that, so Eames as the actor, well, what does that mean? Like, yes, he changes shapes, but like, Actors don't do that. I mean, actors. Yeah, they well, do. Well, why? They, I mean, they, they, they metaphorically do. Fine, they metaphorically do. But I mean, how is Eames acting any more than Leonardo DiCaprio is acting when he says that? Hey, I'm because actually he can an agent anybody. of your subconscious. It's, it's the difference between okay, a Daniel Day Lewis. I, I see that and, uh, in a metaphorical way. Ben but, but uh, so uh, yeah, Ariadne's the production designer. I can see that because she's the architect. But also in terms of the way that she functions in Inception as a film, is she's definitely the audience simply because she is the receptacle for all the yeah, exposition. Definitely. So in that way, I don't think it exactly syncs up one to one. But I mean, we're talking about basically the same thing. I guess I just don't really find a lot of value in ascribing specific roles to the characters because I don't know. Like I think that I think that the point is made. In, in better ways, basically. Okay, okay yeah. Your craziest shit. Let's craziest shit. <laughs> so my craziest shit is that I can see this movie as kind of like almost like Charlie Kaufman's adaptation and that there's almost like a self-reflexive uh, journey that Christopher Nolan is going on in terms of like, how do I make this movie not suck? Holy shit, Leonardo DiCaprio is Chris Nolan? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> uh, kind of, yeah. Okay. They keep, look similar. Keep going. Yeah, they do. They do, that's true. <laughs> um, and I don't think that's relevant, but- Let's think about the criticisms of Christopher Nolan movies. One, people say it's too cranial. Two, people say that there's no emotion. And three, people say that there's never any good female characters. So let's just keep that in mind. So when he's talking to Eames in Mombasa, Eames tells him, look, it's not just about depth. You need the simplest form of the idea in order for it to go naturally into the subject's mind. It's a very subtle art. Um, And then when Cobb says, well, we want uh, the heir of a major corporation to break up his father's empire. And then Eames says, see right there, you've got a various political motivations, anti-monopolistic sentiment and so forth. But all that stuff's at the mercy of the subject's prejudice. You have to go to the basics, the relationship with the father. So once again, like with this meta frame of mind, I was looking at this like, uh, you know, your film can't just be intellectually profound. It has to also emotionally resonate on more fundamental levels. And once again, this is a criticism always leveled at Nolan that like, you know, the, the prestige and memento are super cranial, but at the end of the day, people want something emotional that they can grab onto. So when he's talking about the political motivations, anti-monopolistic sentiments, you may want to make a movie with a grandiose statement, but the way you're going to reach people is by basic human emotions, something that Nolan has arguably struggled with as a filmmaker. Um, I see this as kind of like a filmmaker trying to wrestle with how to make a really intelligent film work. Now, the reason why, and like, if you think about adaptation, so adaptation is we see Charlie Kaufman or Nicolas Cage's character. He's trying to figure out how to write this story. And then once the Robert McKee character tells him, you need fucking drama. And then he integrates the drama into the story with the whole like uh, Meryl Streep's character becoming like, what is it? Like in cahoots with a drug dealer or something crazy like that. So I would say that in a way, 
see, I, I think this is why it's almost, it's both profound and tragic. It's tragic because if he's taking Eames's advice and saying the way that you make an intellectually stimulating movie is to focus on something much more basic, relationships and emotion, then I would say that if, in my crazy theory, then the relationship between Maul and Cobb would be the foundation, that love story, would be the foundation that he emphasizes in order to give this very bizarre, cranial, super uh, ambitious dream project some weight that people can really grab onto. I think that's the part of the movie that doesn't really work that well. Like, the Maul and Cobb stuff is not what people remember. People remember the visuals, they remember the dream logic, and... Uh, and, and and then this this is total projection, but I just can't help but bring it up. When people criticize Christopher Nolan for making shitty female characters, this whole thing is about a guy who literally is wrestling with not even a real woman, but the projection of a woman. And um, I don't know, is, is Nolan criticizing himself by saying he can only write a projection of a woman? Uh, she's kind of just crazy the whole time. And then Cobb's epiphany at the end is that she's just a shade of his wife. Um, now... If I may go farther, <laughs> well, I, I had a I had a thing yeah. I wanted to add to that. For sure. one, the the, the, the thing about uh, I remember reading in, in an interview with uh, Christopher Nolan at the time, and he kind of used Leonardo DiCaprio as his like like you know I make these cra- cranial movies, and the reason I got Leo is because you know he can he can be, he's basically my emotional core of my movie yeah you know uh, uh so I, that that's kind of to your point like where well i think leo does a great job i think that the mall character isn't great but i don't think that that's the actress's problem i think that once again she's playing yeah literally a projection, a proje- a projection of, of a male's his projection mind. well and then i do think that people like it because because one of the scenes that i remember a lot every time is is or that really gets me is the scene the the montage of them growing old as really old people in the in the whatever you call it you know the, the their projection the helen, fourth level helen james what do you guys think did, did uh did the emotional core of the movie work for you guys yeah oh i, I don't know i thought Ma- projection mall was a bit of a well, odd character. I mean, I guess that's sort of the point, right? But um, I'm not sure whether I felt that that, that attention worked or not, maybe to some degree. But uh, also, I'm not sure I really buy this clear distinction between the cerebral or the intellectual and the emotional side of, or particularly a movie. Um, to me, to me, the two work together. Like if something just doesn't make sense or is poorly thought out or there's no real substance to it, I find it difficult to have any sort of emotional reaction to the characters or what's happening. Um and I think that you can use a um, a carefully constructed or well thought out story or um, set of ideas as a way of exploring uh, the richness of human emotions and sentiments and other things like that. So I, I feel like there's a more complex, complicated interplay than than splitting the two one side to the other. There are definitely movies that I like because I tend to gravitate more towards the intellectual side. There are some movies that are just literally just like brainathons. You know, uh, I think yeah. that primer. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Primer's like a puzzle, if you like your movies to be puzzles. But yeah, I guess that's a good example. Like, you're literally just trying to keep up. There's no emotional core. There's no real identification with the struggle of the protagonist. It's just, can you keep up with what's happening? Right. Right. Um, So, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I tend to, like, something like The Dark Knight, once again, like, I think that it's an extremely intelligent film. It's one of my favorite movies ever. But it affects me. I don't know. To me, I do draw a distinction between like what is tickling my brain and what's tickling my heart. I'm not saying there's no distinction to be drawn. I, at least for me, yeah. I, I know different people react differently, but um, the, the, the two interact in more complicated ways than 
than sure. just drawing a simple distinction. Yeah, right. yeah, I agree with that totally. So my next egregious point is that so not only it, we're, so we talk about how the language of dreams works like the language of film. I think that there's a central component of this film that is a very basic yet very profound thing that is unique to cinema, and that is montage, like in the uh, tradition of Kuleshov, Eisenstein, and Podovkin. So like. In this movie, so this is the idea that when you juxtapose two images together that can be unrelated, they create a third meaning. It's like this dialectical process. So uh, if I'm like in Canada and I say, hey, throw me the ball, and then I cut to a shot of Ryan in California throwing a ball, and we juxtapose those images, people won't know that I'm in Canada and that Ryan is there. They'll say that the juxtaposition of those two images suggests that Ryan is throwing a ball to Jared, even though they are not related in reality. So... We see there are scenes in this and, and where like the tension is at its highest point. We see Joseph Gordon-Levitt flying around in a hotel room and then it cuts to a car tumbling around in slow motion and then an avalanche happening in all these different dream worlds and all these different locations. But the juxtaposition of these images that are seemingly not related makes some sort of sense. And Hell I, yeah, editing baby. Love it. <laughs> editing baby. But also that I think you know, if we are to draw more in this meta point, the point is that cinema is magical because it suspends you in a dreamlike state that enables something like this to work. That cinema is the medium of dreams. And I think this is something wholly unique to cinema. Um, the drama being motivated by driving music with images of different things happening in different locations where there's really not a lot of dialogue. Like there are dramatic sequences in which we're just hearing music and these things are happening and there's no dialogue. You can't do that on stage. You can't I, do that on radio. <laughs> and you can't really do that on TV until recently. Um, and once again, at Nolan, the biggest purist cinephile in Hollywood, I think that, um, maybe not necessarily that he was thinking this, but I don't know. It just, it, it, I was motivated to go there because I know that Nolan is super enigmatic and loves cinema and is more of a cinema historian than probably any other living director, maybe other than Scorsese. Yeah, probably. I mean, it, very few people, uh, like, like, think Dunkirk, there's so, there's so few, there's little dialogue in that movie, and it's basically a one, two-hour montage of, you know... Yeah, I have a shirt that says, I saw Dunkirk in 70 millimeter that they were handing out. Like, <laughs> the, the, the medium means a lot to him. Yeah, and he's one of the few people that really uses editing and does new shit with it every time. I mean, every one of his movies kind of does that disjointed time, you know, uh, I feel like those people, the early 90s filmmakers with Tarantino and Chris Nolan and I guess a few other, and Fincher and stuff, and Soderbergh were all using, they were making their movies out of order, and then Christopher Nolan seems to be one of the few people that still keeps doing it, which I don't know why more people don't do that shit, because it's so, it's, you know, a, an otherwise normal movie told in a linear fashion can be way more interesting if you've chop it up like Christopher Nolan does. Like, and he'll do it from scene to scene too. That's why this movie's, the editing is, yeah, really awesome. Yeah. I mean, I even have a meta take on Dunkirk, which probably is not, it's not, <laughs> probably not appropriate we'll, we'll for this. We'll wait for the Dunkirk. We'll wait for this. Yeah. We'll wait for this. James is like, what fucking podcast is this? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, all right. So that's, that's it for my meta spiel. But I, I just got to say, like, when you look at it through this frame of reverence, every time you see a dramatic shadow, every time you see something that perhaps violates your logic of what, you know, real reality is, I find myself always asking, like, okay, this is a cinematic technique. It's dramatization through, uh, you know, stark lighting or uh, very deliberate dramatization. And I find myself asking, is this 
filmmaking technique or that, that, is this indication it, it's, that it's a dream? It's, it's, and that that suspension of which, which is it is what makes this film fun for me to watch. It's like it, it set itself up in a way to where make ever like literally it's about cuts. It's like it, yes. it, 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 every cut, you know, makes you is suspect because you're like this movie is about getting in the middle of a situation, you know. Like, and, and if I can just defend myself, you so don't know where you are. The meta reading about like uh, especially the one where I talked about Cobb talking to Ariadne in the cafe and talking about that. So that was actually brought up by Wired magazine way before this. So. But I just brought it to the insane level with the whole, like, adaptation thing. But anyway, Helen, James, what are some more interesting things about this movie that uh, that come to mind when you guys watch it? Well, there's something that I was thinking about and might be interesting to talk about here, which is whether sure. it might whether it's actually possible to share someone's dream. Um, I don't mean mm. whether it's possible now, right, but whether it could ever be possible. And I was thinking about this, and I reckon it's, it's actually not something that could ever be possible. Um, and he, here's, here's my argument. So um, when we're dreaming, right, we've got a whole bunch of neural activity in our brains that we're interpreting in some way. And, you know, it, it translates into a series of images and emotions and other experiences that we have. Um, for someone to share that, you'd have to have some way of connecting your your brain to there, some series of signals, electrodes implanted in your head. I don't know how it would work. But the point is that there would have to be some way for the input from their mind to get into yours and some way for that to interact with the activity that's generating your dream. But if you were to do that, then that would substantively change the experience of dreaming because instead of just having you know your mind there, you've got all this input coming from someone else's mind. And but would you know the difference? Well... I think you would. I think it's it would be qualitatively different to have uh, a purely internal state to having this sort of extra input coming in there. And although that would be interesting, I don't think it would be quite the same as a dream. So that that's therefore, I, I don't think it would really be possible to share a dream. You, you could share some sort of collective experience with someone, but I think it would be different to dreaming. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And I think cinema is the closest that we get um, <laughs> because we we do and we do see. Um, I remember there's a study back in 2014 where, um, you know, they had uh, some, and I don't remember exactly how many participants, but a number of people watching, you know, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and they found that there was synchronization between, you know, the, all of these different brains in the room when they were, you know, when they had, you know, different people, they looked at it in an MRI, and it's like, wow, you know, we see that there are certain things in this movie that are affecting people's brains all in the same way at the, you know, at the same points in the film, and that's... That is um, kind of fascinating when you think about it, because that in, in a lot of ways, you know, if we are going to take the the idea that um, it, when you think about, you know, how how similar the brain activity looks in dreaming um, when you're, you know, in comparison to when you're watching a film, then it does kind of suggest that, you know, there's an idea there that we can to some degree share. There are some things that are, are you know, similar in the way that people um, interpret interpret all, you know, when we're all watching the same thing, we do have some synchronization there. And, um, yeah, you can parse that apart too. You know, there are things obviously that are different because they're, and there are of course different ways in which people experience things, um, based on experience. But, um, yeah, I do think cinema is the closest that we get. I think this also speaks more to Christopher Nolan's project as being, you know, the guy who makes a movie for a particular format and always shoots on film is that he believes that cinema that it's not only matters what platform you're watching, but also the people you're watching it with. I think that he'll always say, go th see things in a theater because of that collective effervescence enhances the experience of watching with multiple people. And perhaps if we're to take uh, the theory that Ryan was talking about that, um, well, 
I was going to say, like, you know, the whole communal dreaming with all these different roles and stuff is kind of like how a film can be enhanced with a more communal viewing. And that's interesting that you say that because there was research um, fairly recently that kind of that looked at, you know, pairs of friends who are watching something, you know, the same clip. And they find their brains respond closer, you know, to each other's. They're more similar to each other's than does if they're watching it with a stranger. So there is also some idea there that, you know, we, okay, our minds all kind of react similarly when we're seeing certain things on a film, but then our brains with, you know, between friends are even more similar when we're watching mm-hmm. something. So that's that, which is, you know, kind of plays into that, I think. And to, to James's point about can we physically uh, yeah. dream at the same or be in each other's dreams? I mean, getting into like kind of a futurist uh, thing, like, do you see technology where people for fun could like, almost like go under into like a kind of a coma kind of thing or like a, like a regulated coma that you like go into with your friends that you have like some sort of VR (laughs) sort of program you go into. And it's like a fun thing that you do. Well, I was thinking about that. Isn't that basically online gaming? It's like, it's like a more more hardcore version, druggy drug version. It's just like if, if, if VR headsets don't catch up, you know, then we're right. just, fuck it. We'll just do the dream drugged out version. Right. <laughs> now, in so. principle, I think that could be possible. It require it would require a lot of advancement in technology that, that we don't have yet. Sure. Um, but, but yeah, yeah to, to I, your I point, my, like, like, my the actual point dreaming. That would be qualitatively different to dreaming yeah. because of the interactivity aspect of it with, with other people. But yeah, it would be very interesting nonetheless. So James, I understand that you're interested in brain emulation or like the process of scanning a mental state and uploading it to a computer I guess my question is, you mentioned that we still don't really know what happens to our minds or what's actually happening to us while we're dreaming. In this hypothetical process, if we were able, would it be possible to upload of someone's state while they're dreaming? And would that allow us to more objectively measure what is happening or what are we experiencing when we're dreaming? Well, this is a very deep question. So let me just preface this by explaining the idea behind whole brain emulation. The idea is that the the product of our mental activity and everything we think and and believe and so on is is ultimately the result of the um, complicated interactivities of all of the billions of neurons that that are in our brain. And, you know, those are ultimately the product of um, action potentials and and ion channels and all that stuff that's going on chemically. The idea is that if we were able to um, sort of make a recording of that in some medium with sufficient accuracy and then um, emulate that, reproduce that on uh, a computer, a supercomputer of some sort, then the patterns of activity and the interrelations between them that existed in the biological brain would be replicated in the um, inside the computer and that therefore effectively the the mental states that um, the biological brain gave rise to would also uh, be generated within the computer or by the computer so the idea is it would essentially be a functional copy um, the the it would be different at the level of you know instead of cells that there's uh, there'd be silicon and transistors and whatever but functionally in terms of mental states they'd be equivalent that's the idea at least there, there there's people who dispute that but so if you think that that's the that that would be the case, then yeah, uh, dreaming and everything else would um, would be the same as well. And so you would, in theory, be able to um, observe everything about what the person is is thinking or dreaming. Um, th- there's a diff- there's a separate question as to whether you'd be able to make sense of that. Um, that is, in theory, you could make a simulation which ran and dr- dreamed, but you, you would. It, it doesn't necessarily follow that you'd be able to interpret all of the data that you would so produce and like so sort of read their dreams or something like that, um, because that, that would require a whole additional level of understanding about what all this stuff means. Um, but you know, at least in theory, I think that could be possible one day. 
Right. So right now, in terms of the process, like when we say that we're scanning a mental state and uploading it to a computer, is the computer just pure storage at this point? Because like, it's not like, you know, we upload this and then like, you know, my childhood is like a dot MOV that you can like watch my, <laughs> that you yeah. can like watch my fifth birthday party or something. No, right. It's, what is the output? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the, the idea of what the output is, is an interesting question. Probably, I think you would have to hook it up to a, um, to input and output apparatuses that at least approximated our actual senses because the, our brains are strongly um, designed by evolution to interact with the world in particular ways, you know, sight, sound, motor control and things like that. So probably I don't think an emulation like this could work unless it had similar ways of interacting with the world and gaining stimuli and, and outputting um, motor control or something like that. Um, so yeah, it would probably this is this is an approach called embodied cognition that that in order to sort of uh, produce a mind, you have to embody it and and make it part of the world in some sort of physical way. Um, but yeah, so probably that you'd have to do that. Um, the, the idea though is that it's not just it, it's not just a storage space. The idea is that you have. Um, you have huge processing power, which runs essentially a program, but the purpose of that program is to uh, replicate the neural activity in that exists in, in your brain. And instead of that being done in a biological substrate, it's done in a, you know, a silicon um, artificial computer substrate. The, the, the theory is that if that's done at a sufficient level of detail, then all of the relevant um, functional activity will be the same, and therefore the, the mental output at the end will be the same. So James, it's, it's a whole new file name that we haven't even thought of, dude. <laughs> it's just dot dot, dot brain. Dot dude. brain. What what is what, what is the um, the motivating factor for this research, James? Like what what is, who's funding the research, and what is is it that we're hoping that to use this technology to cure brain diseases? Is it just to understand the subconscious better? What, what is driving this uh, this effort? Well, I mean, there's not exactly one effort. There are lots of people who are doing work that's more or less related to this idea of brain emulation. Probably one of the um, main projects is called the Human Brain Project, which is um, being run in Europe at the moment, where they're they actually looking at um, trying to build um, large-scale simulations of um, neural structures, ultimately simulating an entire brain. But I should emphasize that we're many decades away from being able to do this, you know, with, with a whole human brain. Um, this is largely at the theoretical stage at the moment. But the idea is that um, the, ultimate, the ultimate advantage of a simulation of something is that you have access to, at least in principle, all of the data. Because at the moment, we can we can record from uh, we can record from single neurons. We can record from s small groups of neurons. We can also record from like using an EEG or an fMRI, sort of larger brain areas. But because cognition is so complicated, and because we've got billions of neurons interacting with each other um, all at the same time, we would to understand what's going on. We would really need to be able to measure from all of those neurons and all of their connections, or at least a large number of them, at the same time, and and use all of that output to try and put it together and figure out what's happening. And, and we just can't do that at the moment. That's an intractable uh, problem in terms of experimentally. The idea is if you had a simulation, you'd sort of, by, by the fact of it, automatically have all that information there. It's already in the computer. And so then you would just have to figure out how to interpret it. So having the simulation doesn't mean you necessarily understand how the thing works, um, but it gives you all of that data already in an accessible form that then you can study and figure out how it works. And, and the idea is, yeah, ultimately, it's hoped to, that this would have applications for um, for psychiatry, for, for mental illnesses, and just for understanding cognition uh, uh, in general terms. You know, I'm starting to think that a really good movie to have James on for is The Sixth Day with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Have you seen that, James? I don't think I have, no. <laughs> it's kind of all about this. It's basically about they take pictures of your mind 
and then they can just like kill you and then create a clone and then just like <laughs> upload that picture to the person's mind and then it's you know you're just that person now right. and like yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger realizes clone. he's a clone have you seen that movie Ryan? yeah yeah what do you think about it? I like that movie I like that movie too <laughs> it was, this is like during the, the era where all Schwarzenegger films were just getting panned by <laughs> critics and I actually yeah I like that one too what was the devil one? alright we're getting on a Schwarzenegger thing I'll, it's like, uh, end of <laughs> yeah. days I like yeah, that yeah, one yeah. too um, are you a racer fan? I actually haven't seen that one Okay. All right, so we are running low on time, so we're going to move on. I just want to tell all the people listening, email us at movies at wisecrack.co. I know there is a lot of stuff that we did not touch on. We didn't touch about talk about trains, about mazes, the labyrinth imagery. We didn't talk about uh, the Edith Piaf song. We I feel didn't like talk we about, got about 10% of We this got about movie. 10%. We didn't talk about the Francis Bacon thing, uh, the Francis Bacon uh, image um, that is in the background. Uh, so maybe we'll do a Inception Revisited one day. Uh, also, uh, th that thing where I was talking about the director, production yeah, yeah. designer <laughs> stuff, Christopher Nolan actually said all that. I just realized what? that. Yeah. So, oh, wow. So, death, ha -ha. Of the, death, of, <laughs> death of the author, bro. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it's an entertainment weekly, bro. Okay. Well, Nolan, good for you, man. Uh, all right. So, do we have any mailbag questions picked out? Um, all right. So, hey, we got some annihilation questions. Okay. Okay. Have you have either Helen or James seen Annihilation? I have seen Annihilation. I James? don't think I have, no. Okay. You can just guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, hello, Lucas. Hello, show me the meaningers. Gre greetings from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Longtime listener, first time emailer. I've been listening to the show since its debut with satisfaction and glee. Um, just wanted to point out a couple of things about Annihilation. When I was reading the book, this person read the book, the description of the edges of Area X, re referenced in the movie primarily as the shimmer, reminded me of the surreal pictures produced by the deep dreams of Google's image recognition AI. You guys have seen that thing? I saw um, this email. He sent us pictures. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he did. I guess Alex Garland was thinking the same thing because, lo and behold, the edges of the shimmer in the movie do resemble those wacky pictures I have for reference here. Uh, so that's pretty interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. I love those AI Google dr deep dream things. I do it to all my pictures. It's really very fun. Um, second point, yeah, so go, go check that out online. It's pretty cool. Second point, the interior of the lighthouse. When Natalie Portman's character enters the hole, the chamber within it, the, the chamber within is made of black tentacles, thick wires and coils subtly moving up and down. That reminded me of H.R. Geiger, who was uh, uh, obsessed with that type of imagery. I suggest that was Garland's inspiration. What do y'all think? Um, I'm actually not familiar with Ge Geiger. Are any of you guys? You are? You aren't? No. Oh, man, he's not. fucking awesome. Yeah, he oh, did all well, the... You, you all the I mean, yeah, he's, he's right, pretty much. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of been used in lots of science fiction stuff now. But yeah, Aliens is kind of the... The it's like even like Prometheus. It's kind of that that black kind of weird black ship. wiry kind. Of also like kind of yeah. like the real world in the Matrix or like the in interior of the Nebuchadnezzar. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's that kind of thing. Interesting. I'll have to look at, look at the, look this guy. So up. those are two inspirations. And in, in, uh, dude, you would love that dude. He's awesome. He has. He's from. I want to say Switzerland or something, <laughs> but I'm probably totally wrong. Sorry. Um, okay. Let's go to the next one. Um, I annihilation got in my brain. This is from <laughs> Melanie. <laughs> um, just listen to your Annihilation podcast. I have neither seen the movie or read the book, but I, but I irresponsibly have an opinion. I have nothing to... You don't need to see the movie, but go on. I haven't read this email, by the way, so I don't know if you have a good point. I have nothing to cite, no lar larger framework, but it's along the lines of your 
uh, more ego-related comments. I think the film can be thought of as the necessary changes one should make to continue their relationships and to just get on with living. What do you think, Jared? <laughs> Interesting. I th- see. I was tempted to make that reading, but I think similar to Inception, the relationship element is so buried under all of the sci-fi uh, logic and exposition that. It's hard to draw any kind of meaningful conclusions about the relationships in these movies because they're just so forgettable. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Did you like the movie, Helen? I thought it was very visually compelling. I mean, it was beautiful. Um, And it it was cool because, you know, uh, and I apologize because I haven't listened to the podcast you did on this, so you may have mentioned this, but, you know— I feel like it's rare that we kind of see things that we haven't seen before in film. I thought these worlds were very—this whole world was very interesting um, and very, like I said, very visually compelling. Um, but it was okay. It was it was left in the end kind of like, what's the—what? What did you yeah. want to What were you trying that to get was all, That was all we said during the podcast was what <laughs> a bunch of times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was my feeling at the end, too, so— all right, guys, well, we're going to wrap it up. So first thing I want to let you guys know about is please go check out James's podcast, The Science of Everything. He was super insightful here today. And if you want more of that kind of insight, check him out on uh, Apple Apple Podcast, iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, where else, James? Uh, the easiest way is probably just to Google The Science of Everything podcast and then find a source that's easy for you. Um, it seems to have been picked up on a whole, whole, whole bunch of aggregators that I never put it on. So huh? Okay, so just yeah. Google it? Just Google it. Uh, yeah. Uh, anything else you want to plug, James? Oh, yeah, just my blog. Um, if people are interested in sort of philosophy and theism and uh, that sort of thing, the, the godless theist. Yes. I apologize for getting that wrong. But once again, I did I, I did read some of it, and I, I find your work very inspiring. Oh, thank so, you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for writing something on the internet that is in trash. <laughs> <laughs> tries. Helen, how where we find you on the internet? Let's see. I have a website. It's it's not particularly exciting, but if you want to check out my work, some business journalism and some science stuff, um, I am at flourish, F-L-O-E-R-S-H dot com. <laughs> cool. And Ryan? Uh, yeah. Check out the game show I make in my garage with people on the internet and I give them ramen and it's called Ryan's Game Show. It's on YouTube and Facebook. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And as I've been telling people, you can friend me on Facebook because I don't have Twitter. If you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm at Father of Woody. It's all dog pictures. (laughs) Finally. Strictly dog pictures. Um, And yeah, that's going to do it for today. I want to remind you guys, check out Wisecrack Plus. Uh, More fan engagement allows us to continue to develop new ideas like the one we're doing with Helen. Um, And so, yeah. And also, if you have the time, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us mucho, mucho, mucho. It doesn't take long, and if I may speak from experience, giving us five stars feels very good. So I highly recommend doing it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, So thank you to James and Helen for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. And we will see you guys next time. Burn! Peace. Peace.